Let me open in prayer and then we'll get to the word together. Our Father, thank you for a beautiful morning. Thank you for a clear day. Thank you for delicious food and for the fellowship of these men. These are great and tremendous blessings in the world that is um, very quickly turning upside down. And so this is just a small taste, Lord, of our eternal destiny. If one knows Christ as Savior, this is the type of fellowship that will go on into eternity. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the cross of Christ. I thank you, Lord, for paying the penalty for the sins of all who would call upon you and ask for mercy. Thank you for satisfying your own wrath through Christ, for satisfying the sin debt that we owed to you, that before your throne, we are declared innocent. We have been declared to have the righteousness of Christ, and we may look forward to a glorious eternity with you, completely secured, completely assured. We thank you for that. I ask you, Lord, in the life of these men, in the life of our church as a whole, that you would use our time this morning to propel us forward to be a church that would be pleasing to Christ, to be a bride of Christ that is pleasing and unbesmirched and pure, a bride that looks out for one another, that helps one another. Lord, I pray that you would bless whatever words are spoken, particularly the words spoken from the Bible, that they would penetrate our hearts and be that which help us to love one another, to mentor one another, to teach one another, to be there for each other as the church is supposed to be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I figured I'd rather squint than have all of you guys squinting. So if I'm doing that, that's, uh, that's why. Um, I'm going to have, have you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll be there just for a bit. <clears throat> and while you're finding that, I want to tell you about um, a guy named Wally. Can you hear me in the back if I speak at this level? That's good? Okay. When I knew Wally, he wasn't yet a believer in Christ. And he would be eventually um, come to saving faith. But uh, Wally, interestingly enough, is married to Dolly. And at the time I knew him, they had a dog named Ollie. So it's just kind of an unusual thing. But Wally was blue collar all the way. And he, he had been a, um, a career airplane mechanic in the Air Force. And then he transitioned into the aerospace industry. Um, he was what I call a classic example of a, of a beautiful blue collar ethic. He was a baseball coach for his kids. He took his family to the ball games. He wasn't particularly a warm and fuzzy type of a guy. He wasn't very emotional at all. But he was consistent. He was a provider. He was stable. He didn't ask for much and he didn't demand much. He just was normal. His Wednesdays, Thursdays, or Fridays were the same as the previous Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. They always were. His weekends were the same. He just was absolutely consistent. To this day, he lives in the same house that he did when I knew him. And he's important in my life because for me, he is a living example of what a man is supposed to be in very basic form because I knew him when I was 10 years old. And he was an example. He was a model for me. And that couldn't have come in a better time because at that particular point in my life, I saw my own dad one time a year. And so Wally was important to me. I was in his house all the time. His family let me spend tons of time with them, enough time that they corrected me as parents would do. Um, they, they took me to everything. I can picture their house in more detail than some of the houses I grew up in because I spent that amount of time there. He was, Wally was, my first real consistent example of manhood. My dad was a good example, but he wasn't consistent because he wasn't there. And so... It gave me a great thrill 11 years ago to learn that Wally had come to faith in Christ. And what did Wally do as a new Christian? Not surprisingly, began serving faithfully in his church, never misses a Sunday, always in Bible study, and always pouring his life into others. Because that's what he did even before he was a believer. And so that just transitioned right into his, his, um, his faith. Now, here's why I tell you about Wally. He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was a discipler for me. He never said that. We never spoke of it. Not one time did he use words like that. And yet he is in the top five most influential men in my life. 
Why? Because his life was consistent and I watched it. Sometimes I tell parents there's only one job that kids have and that is to watch you. And so that's, that's who I was watching. I was watching Wally. I still think about him today. I still think about him when I'm tempted to not be consistent in something. Goes through my mind, what would Wally do? Well, Wally would do the same thing he's always done, be consistent. All of you, I hope, have had what we might call silent examples. You've had men in your life that you have watched and maybe even just watched for a moment, for a slice of their life, and something struck you that changed the direction of some area of your life. All of you have had that. If you haven't, that that shows in your life because you're, you, you flounder a little bit. But all of you can point to a man or men who impacted how you think about God, who've impacted how you manage your money, who've impacted how you manage your marriage. You can look back and see that, and maybe even men now. And so my goal for you this morning is very simple. I want to convince you that if you've walked with Christ for any amount of time whatsoever, you can be a mentor. You can be a disciple maker. You can influence somebody else's life. Now, this is going to be a tough sell. And I'll tell you why. Now, this is why I'm keeping close to the road. I can run if this doesn't go over too well. <laughs> it's going to be a tough sell because generally speaking in the church, I think most men consider themselves unqualified consider themselves, well, I'm not a disciple maker. I don't know where to start. Uh, Or for some of you, the thought of sitting with a cup of coffee and an open Bible across from one other man is the most terrifying thought on planet earth. You know, look, give me something to do. Let me climb a tree or, or saw a piece of wood or shoe the gun. I can do that. But sitting there and starting this conversation, that seems intimidating. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this is as more men come to Grace Bible Church, and I've noticed this over the years that I've been here and in, in really any church that's teaching expositionally, men come in three different categories, basically. And this is a broad generalization. First category they come in is they already know what they're about. They're fairly mature in their faith. They're just coming where the food is. And so they, they want to be here for that reason. Second category, you have uh, a believing man who hasn't been taught very well and he walks in the door and after about two Sundays is... is almost panicked. Like, what do I do with all this information? How do I process this? And there's almost this feeling of the the drinking through a fire hose feeling. Then the third category of man is, is maybe a brand new believer who, uh, you, you know, he's, he's, he's saying, look, I don't even know the difference between old and new Testament. I'm guessing the old came first and that's about all I know. So all three of those men, especially the second cat, second and third category, Man, they could use a guy that just come alongside them and and just put put your arm around them and help them a little bit. We have young men in our church who have not had consistent godly examples. Um, they're they're here, and so we need role models. Uh, we need them desperately. All of some of you may be in this category. Um, some of you may know men in this category, but men who grow up without a father, it's devastating to them because. You know, you might not be, as a, as a dad, you might not be the most articulate, you might not be the, the most well-spoken, but if you're there, that's a good first step, is being there. If you're consistent, that's a great second step. And if you're providing an example in even a few major areas of life, we cling to that. Um, I'm, I'm going to prove this to you. How many of you men have thought about your dads in the last week? I rest my case. They are with us now. Your dad may have provided an example of what not to do, right? But you're still thinking about him. He's still there. He's still there. We need role models. So this morning, what I want to do, a little different than what I normally do, I want to just be extremely practical, extremely applicational. And we'll just use 2 Timothy chapter 2 as our starting point. Just to give us a little context here, the Apostle Paul is giving his final instructions to Timothy. This is it. These are your last instructions. Timothy is now going to bear the torch for the Apostle Paul after Paul's death, Timothy is the most like Paul more than any other of Paul's fellow workers. Timothy is, is, is very much like him. And one of the major instructions that Paul gives Timothy provides us our model for discipleship, our model for mentoring. First Timothy 2, and we'll read the first two verses. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing difficult about this. This is, this is very upfront. Timothy at this point is Paul's pastoral and his apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus. But before this, Timothy had traveled with Paul for many, many years. He had heard in all likelihood thousands of sermons from the apostle Paul. We have a visitor up front here. There's no altar call yet. For those listening to the recording, a big dog just walked by. The dog's name is Rocket Man, for those on the recording. The apology comes from Dave Dahl as well. If they don't have a context, they won't understand the recording. So, so what, what Paul is going after with Timothy, it's very simple. It, it's like he sat under... Everything he's ever, er, that Paul has ever preached, he's been to city after city, he's heard sermon after sermon after sermon. You hear that enough and it becomes ingrained in you. And so Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, what does that mean? It means that Paul has been preaching and Timothy sitting there at the same time for so long that Timothy's just immersed in the gospel. He's immersed in the word of God. He just knows it. And so now Paul instructs Timothy to take what he's learned to pick some men and there to be faithful men. Now, in this particular case, Paul is instructing Timothy to be very selective, to pick men who have hearts to learn, who have hearts to be mature, to pick spiritually hungry men. There's a couple of reasons for his selectivity here. Um, first of all, it will keep Timothy from wasting his time. Uh, he, he doesn't want, to, want him to do that. And when someone asks me to invest time in them, but they don't show up or they're late or they don't do what I ask them to do, I generally drop that pretty fast. It doesn't mean I don't like that person or that man. It just means that I'd rather invest in those who are hungry, not those who are mildly have an appetite. But the other reason for the selectivity, first of all, to keep Timothy from wasting his time, but the second reason is because he's specifically picking men who will replicate themselves. Can I put it this way? Paul was not telling Timothy to make disciples. He was telling Timothy to make disciple makers. And there's a big difference. And this is the dynamic. This is the nature of discipleship. One man, Timothy, selecting even just a few men who in turn will each teach a few men. Can you imagine the impact on the church of Jesus Christ if every man did that at some little level? I'm not a mathematician, but here's a, a little exercise I did. I picked a 20-year period, and if one man in that whole 20 years had an impact on just two other men, and those two men had an impact on two other men, and so forth, and that that built outwards, in 20 years, that would be discipleship mentoring to over 1 million men. The, The impact is tremendous, and so... This is right about the point where you read 2 Timothy 2, 2, and you say, yeah, but I'm no Timothy. I'm not a Timothy, and I'm certainly not a Paul whatsoever. That sort of discipleship is not for me. I, I'm not built that way. I won't know what to say if somebody asked me to explain the Trinity. I won't know what to say if somebody asked me to explain the problem of sin and evil. I'll feel awkward if somebody starts sharing personal details of their life with me. I I don't do that stuff. When somebody says, let me tell you about my marriage, I say, let me tell you about the door because I don't want to hear about your marriage. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a theologian. I mean, I I don't have any formal training or I'm not a one-on-one talking sort of a guy. You know, you, you tell two ladies, why don't you go have a cup of tea and enjoy each other? They're all, oh, all excited. You tell two guys, why don't you go have a cup of coffee and enjoy each other? Some guys are like, uh, can we do something? Like maybe shoot something while we're talking? You know, let's just have a long conversation. No, I, I'd rather not. Let's go clean the toilet. I'd rather do that. And so if all these excuses and in that spirit, I want to just spend a few minutes with you showing you some very practical outworkings of 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Any man who has known Christ for any period of time can pursue this at some level. You do not have to be a theologian. Um, you can use what you have. And so I want to just do three things this morning. Um, first of all, I want to give you some reasons that men shy away from one-on-one discipleship, one-on-one mentoring, and I'm going to give you the antidote to each of them. We'll just spend a couple of minutes on that. 
Second thing I'd like to do is I want to show you three New Testament examples of behind the, sin, behind the scenes uh, role models who don't talk that much, who are just setting an example that are not the upfront kind of a guys. They're, they're, the, they're the hard workers. They're just behind the scenes. They're, they're quieter. And then the third thing I want to do is I want to give you eight ways to be a mentor that fits who you are, not fits who somebody else is. So, so that's what we're going to do this morning, a little bit topical. First of all, I want to show you reasons that you may shy away from one-on-one discipleship or mentoring and give you some of the antidotes. And these, this is not comprehensive. It's just the ones I've run into or that, that people have told me. First reason you may shy away is believing that you have to be completely knowledgeable. Believing you have to be completely knowledgeable. What, what if they ask me for the outline of the book of Job? I, I don't know that. I don't even know where Job is. And until last week, I thought it was Job. <laughs> What's the antidote to that? The antidote is your church. Your church has resources. We have, uh, we have trained men. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can set the parameters. You can say, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. And if somebody asks a, a deep theological question, you can say, here's what I can do. I can write it down and I can go find the answer. It's, it's that simple. Here's another reason men shy away from one-on-one mentoring. Fear of time commitment. The fear of the time commitment. And, and look, rightly so. If you guys are trying to be godly, if you're trying to follow after the Lord, that means you're, it means you're working hard. It means you're trying to spend time with your wife, trying to raise your kids. And by the time you do those three things, there's not much time left, right? I mean, if you, you know, maybe you try to, hey, I can watch 11 minutes of Netflix. And even then you fall asleep and it breaks your nose. There just isn't that much time. The antidote to this is to have very well-defined mentoring time. When, when somebody says to me, I would like for you to mentor me, I never do open-ended. I never say, sure, I'll mentor you for the rest of my life. Um, I did that as a pastor in, in Texas, and I at one point had 25 men I was seeing every week one-on-one. And I was a part-time pastor. So... That was insane. It didn't work. So what you can do is say, here are the parameters. You can have specific goals to meet, specific goals to talk about, and you can be creative with your time. Um, I'm always amazed that men tell me, I don't have enough time, and yet they take an hour-long lunch playing video games. Take one lunch. Take a breakfast. Lose 45 minutes of sleep one night a week. You, You won't die, I promise you. You can squeeze in that time and you just be real good with your time. You believe that God will bless your time. Believe that he'll bless your commitment to your family. Um, get the support of your of your wife and just say, look, there's this young man I want to invest in. What's the very best time to do that? So it is possible. Another reason we might shy away. The belief that someone else will take care of it. Well, that's the pastor's job or, or, or these are the, the really mature men. They're supposed to take care of it. You know, I'm glad Wally didn't say someone else to take care of this because I desperately needed Wally. And all he did was come knock on my door and say, hey, come over for dinner tonight because my family was out and about. They're not doing anything. Um, all he did was say, hey, we're going to the ball game. I got a ticket for you. All he did was say, we're having the barbecue in the backyard. Do you like chicken or beef? That's what he did. And I'm so glad he didn't say someone else will take care of little Steve because I needed him at that moment. What's the antidote to believing someone else will take care of it? How about this? Desiring to get to the end of your life and being able to count, at least on one hand, the number of people's lives you've changed. Amen. Just, just a few. Is your life utterly selfish because the only thing you changed was your clothes on occasion? Or can your life be characterized by the fact that three or four men will say, that guy changed the course of my life in some way, in some direction? Why do we love heroes? Ultimately, we love heroes. Why? Because we dream of being one, right? And you all can be. Think about the examples that you've had. Aren't you glad they didn't say someone else can take care of it? I'm thankful for that for me. There's one more reason that men shy away from one-on-one discipleship. I've already alluded to this, but it's believing that all discipleship must happen in one fashion, sitting at a table with books opened. Now, that's my favorite, and that is 
effective and that is important and that's ultimately the foundation you have to have. You have to learn theology. You have to learn the Bible. But you can also do some other things, not to replace the Bible, but to apply the Bible. Uh, We talked about this in, in our vehicle on the way up here. What's the difference between discipleship and mentoring? They're very much like the MasterCard symbol where there's overlapping circles. But the difference, very simply, is discipleship involves more the theological training that you need to mentor someone to live that theology out in very practical ways. Why do you spend less money than you make? Because the Bible says, pay attention to your flocks. Why do you love your wife? Not because it gets something for you, but because the Bible says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and honor her because she is the weaker vessel. So it doesn't have to happen in one fashion. You might be more of a doer. You might be that guy that that when I say, sit across the table from someone, no, I'd rather not. I'd rather make a table. I'd rather destroy a table. I'd rather shoot a table, but not sit at the table. I understand that. So you may be more of a doer. Your invitation to mentor a man might consist of six trips to the driving range. It might consist of a time doing something together, hiking together, building something together. And your meaningful conversation might only be five minutes. It might be 10 minutes. But those five minutes where you say, you know, I've noticed that you speak to your wife in a very disrespectful manner. Could I share with you what's been helpful in my marriage as we're attempting to follow Christ? Three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And that guy will go home and he won't stop thinking about that for a month. Why? Because you were doing something. You were ministering to him in a very simple way. Your meaningful conversation might be an offhanded comment that you've been praying for exactly the right moment to say. You know, uh, you're at the driving range. You know, I noticed that every time you look up, you do this amazing hook so bad it goes into the next yard. I've noticed when I take my eyes off the Lord, my life starts doing that. And I've noticed that your life is doing that. You see how you, man, you can work that in. And then that's it. All right, hit the next ball. You know, leave him. What? That's all you're going to say? Yeah, I want you to think about it. Amazing impact. So take those reasons and whatever yours are and just pull back for a minute and say, you know, I can do that. I can have some impact at some level. Now, I'd like to spend most of our time this morning looking at three New Testament examples of behind the scenes. I think I said behind the sins earlier. That was kind of funny. Uh, Behind the scenes, disciple makers. And we're going to spend a little time in the word here. Turn to um, 1 Thessalonians 1, just back a little bit from 2 Timothy. And I want to show you first the example of the Thessalonian men, just the men in this church in general. And I wanted to highlight these men first because they're all new believers. None of them are theologians. None of them have it all together. None of them, they don't even have a Bible yet. All they have is the memory of three months teaching by the Apostle Paul. That's all they've got. But these all new believers are blazing the trail in discipleship and in evangelism. First Thessalonians 1, look with me at verses 6 through 8. And you became imitators of us. Oh, what is that? Well, I don't know my theology, but I watched the life of the Apostle Paul for three months. So I'm just going to do everything he did. What did he do? Well, let's see. He prayed. He uh, believed on Christ. He lived a life that was worth imitating. I think I'll do that. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word. Uh Uh-oh, hang on. Is your life a life that if somebody imitates you, they are imitating God? Did you catch that? You have the power of example of helping somebody else live a life that is pleasing to God, that is more like God, simply because they're acting like you. That's That's a responsibility. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now, this is interesting. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and the living and true God. What does this mean? 
the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, would get to, uh, with, with uh, Silas and Timothy, he'd get to a new city, and he'd start proclaiming the gospel. Somebody would raise their, hey, uh, Paul, um, we met some guys who know you from Thessalonica, and they've already told us this. They told us about Christ, and they told us how, how much you enjoyed being there. And Paul's going, this is amazing. The word of God beat him to the next city because that's what the men of Thessalonica were doing. The best theory is that the men of Thessalonica were simply traveling for business, and everywhere they went, they were a light for the gospel, and they were on fire. They were, they were giving it a great example of lifestyle evangelism. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any period of time, You've heard the gospel from every conceivable angle that we can think of. You've heard the gospel of Christ uh, in, in every setting. The gospel is in your soul, whether you know it or not. If you've been here for a year or two or three, the gospel is, being, is permeating who you are. This is such a simple way to be a disciple maker. Like the Thessalonians, to pray for other men with whom you can share the gospel. That's really where it starts. Who, who else can I share the gospel with? Or maybe you say, man, I, I can't put together a good gospel presentation. I alone could thwart the doctrine of election because I can't seem to get a gospel presentation together. Okay, you know what you can do? Why don't you come to church with me and I'll buy you lunch after that. You can do that. Uh, I don't feel like doing that. Next week, why don't you come to church with me? Next week, why don't you come to church with me? This is one thing that men can do with other men is just to challenge them and to say, you know, what wimpy part of you thinks that you're going to die if you come sit and listen to some guy talk for 45 minutes? Okay, I'll come to church with you. You can do that. Don't be shy about it. And so there's the lifestyle evangelism. Everybody can do that. Let me show you a second example. The example of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, turn to Philippians chapter 2, just a few pages back to the left. Philippians 2. And we get to this wonderful man here. I want to take some time to tell you about him and then tell him why he's a great example for us. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Now, in Philippians 4, the end of the book, we learn that the Philippian church had endeavored to care for the Apostle Paul by keeping him financially very, very well provided for while he's in prison in Rome. And so Epaphroditus comes to Paul. He's traveled 800 miles from Philippi all the way to Rome. He has taken a minimum of six weeks to get there in dangerous territory. Not only that, he came at great personal risk, it says here, of death. He pushed himself by God's grace and mercy through this life-threatening illness. And Paul had obviously great affection for Epaphroditus. Paul called Timothy his son. He calls Epaphroditus my brother. Now, Epaphroditus was not only sent with the gift for Paul, but he was sent to serve Paul in any way he could. Look at how Paul characterizes him. Verse 25 again. My brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, I want to just walk through each of those. We'll start with the second one, the fellow worker. Epaphroditus was known to Paul to be a man who worked for the gospel, who worked for the kingdom. Paul did not hand out that title easily. He never said to an entire church, you are all my fellow workers. The only time he uses that term is when he points out individuals. And so Epaphroditus has a a cut above reputation here. He's not only a worker for the gospel, but he is apparently a tireless worker as well. Verse 27, he was ill, near to death. God had mercy on him and on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. We don't know whether he became ill during his journey or after. Probably the best idea is that it was on the journey because it says in verse 30 that he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In the ancient world, when you got a serious illness, that was pretty much it. 
you're expected to die. And yet Epaphroditus kept going. He kept on. He didn't stop. He had a determination to finish his mission. He was carrying the money that Paul would use to continue to live on, to support him. And he saw the gospel work as the most important thing that he did. He was absolutely relentless. And this is just a side note here. But one of the reasons I love Epaphroditus is because he's not a consumer a consumer as far as the church goes. He doesn't think of the church of Jesus Christ as something that is there to serve me. He doesn't think of his pastor, Paul, as somebody there to serve him and make him happy. He was relentless. He was willing to die for the sake of the gospel. He wasn't a guy to send an email to the pastor and say, you know, I don't like the lighting on Sunday mornings or the chairs are a little bit uncomfortable or, um, you know, have you noticed that uh, you know, we don't serve coffee right now because of coronavirus and I, I really feel that's horrible. Epaphroditus would laugh in your face if you said things like that. Oh, well, my feelings got hurt by this person. Really? How about his feelings? I think I'm about to die because I'm carrying money. No, he was relentless. He was a fellow worker, a tireless fellow worker. Paul also calls him a fellow soldier. Soldiers endure tremendous hardships. They endure danger. They sacrifice to accomplish their mission. I I know a number of combat veterans, and I'm not a combat veteran myself, but I'm amazed at the stories they tell that things six months earlier they never would have thought of having to do now become normal daily routines in terms of just even taking care of yourself. Tremendous hardships. In verse 30, Paul says to Epaphroditus that says that Epaphroditus nearly died risking to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, he's not saying that the church of Philippi failed somehow, that they didn't come through. It just means the Philippian church, they had a desire to give to Paul. They just didn't have a messenger. You know, you couldn't just use MoneyGram to get money to him. He had somebody had to walk 800 miles. You know, any volunteers? Well, I could lo- use a, lose a little weight. I guess I'll do it. 800 miles. No, Epaphroditus was fulfilling their desire. Now, here's here's an irony. Wish I had more time to go into this. Epaphroditus, uh, his parents would have been uh, pagans, and they named him after the goddess Aphrodite. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was a fairly common name and it was supposed to be a lucky name. It was supposed to mean uh, a, a, a name that meant someone who can gamble successfully. So if your name is Epaphroditus and you're driving through Nevada, you can expect to make some money, apparently. That's the way it goes. But Paul says that he risked his life. This is a play on words because it literally in Greek says he gambled with his life. He threw the dice with his life. But he wasn't lucky, so to speak, because of a lifeless imaginary goddess. He was blessed because he had the mercy of God. Verse 27. So why would Epaphroditus risk his life just to bring money to Paul? I could preach a whole message on giving just from this. Because I, you know, I hear this all the time. Well, I, I, I need to pay for that extra semester for my child in, in college. So I'm going to quit giving to the Lord or I needed this fifth car. So I need to quit giving for a while. Like, you know, Epaphroditus uh, risked his life. He risked his life to give. But why was he doing that? It wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about supporting Paul. Epaphroditus was supporting Paul because Paul was proclaiming the gospel. And so it was his care for the gospel, his care for souls that he was a soldier, a fellow soldier. He's also called a messenger and minister. We put these two together. They really work, work together. Minister here, this is a Greek word used five times in the New Testament. It's a very general word. It's not a specific designation like a pastor or an elder or a deacon. It's just a general servant. It just means anyone who will do something on God's behalf. And so if you're sweeping floors at the church, you are being, according to this word, a minister for God. Epaphroditus was just passing on to Paul what he'd been given to by the Philippians. He's just an ordinary Christian with extraordinary devotion to the gospel. Paul loved him. And look how the church loved him. Verse 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. That's the church's love for somebody who's been a servant in their midst. And I I won't ask this question of you. You can ask it of yourselves. 
Are you somebody that if the church, the church didn't see you for a while, would rejoice in seeing you again, or would they have missed you? Well, once in a while, somebody will say, you know, I haven't been to church in two months and nobody missed me. I'm older now, so I can say, that's on you. Why did nobody miss you? I don't know. You're going to have to answer that. He was missed. And they wanted to have him back. Look how selfless he is. Verse 26. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed that he that you heard that he was ill. Did you catch this? He's worried. He's the one who nearly died. He's the one who was sick. He's the one whose life is in danger. And he's worried that they might be worried about him. Oh, I don't want them to worry. Amazingly selfless. His distress, his worry here, it's a Greek word that means great anguish, sorrow, mental discomfort. He, it was killing him that he hadn't been able to comfort them. He loved his brothers and sisters in the church. Well, not only did Paul call Epaphroditus his fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister, first he calls him my brother. He calls him my brother. Now, in this context, the ideal of brotherhood was actually pretty unique. It was, it was very unusual. In a couple of contexts, it wasn't. Roman soldiers enjoyed a, a fellowship together because of their dangers they faced. There were political associations and some service organizations. But other than that, the idea at this point in history is that the ancient world was much more divided. Brotherhood was not the main idea. There were the Greeks versus the Romans. There were Gentiles versus Jews. You had aristocrats versus commoners. You had citizens versus soldiers. Belonging to a group of any kind was based on your economic status, your social status, your nationality, what you did for a living. So, so brotherhood based on a larger ideal was not well known at all. There wasn't a single unifying factor. And so for Paul to call somebody very different than himself, my brother, this would have been eye-opening. Now, enter Jesus Christ and enter the gospel of Christ, changing hearts from enemies of God to worshipers of God. And all of a sudden, you have a reason for a brotherhood. You have a togetherness. These believers here, they knew that they'd been all under the curse of God. And now they've been brought under the banner of Christ together by virtue of their repentance of sin. Paul even says so in Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All those distinctions are gone. And so for him to call Epaphroditus my brother is, is a massive statement. Now, why am I holding up Epaphroditus as an example of a disciple maker, of a, of a mentor? Because we don't see him actually doing that in the way we normally think of this. Epaphroditus would probably fit into the classic mold of a faithful deacon in the church, maybe even not even a deacon, just a, a faithful worker, a foot soldier, a helper, a, a brother. He exerted himself. Here's how his example goes. He exerted himself to make sure that those proclaiming the gospel were cared for and that the gospel would go forward. That is an amazing thing. There's a, a, a pastor I've read uh, numbers of times he grew up with one brother and his father sat down with the both of them. They were all believers. And he pointed to the one and he said, you are going to be a minister of the gospel of Christ. And he pointed to the other and said, you need to make as much money as possible and make sure he never lacks for anything. And you two work together. And they, they did. An amazing story. We don't need 50 preachers in every local church, but we do need laborers. We need those who faithfully in all of their power are enabling facilitating the preached word of god and discipleship and you might think well i don't want to do something so low that it doesn't matter let me ask you a question i'm preaching every sunday and statistically 60 percent of our church is women if somebody didn't stock the women's bathroom with toilet paper before church do you think that they would be listening no they would be whispering to one another, whose job was that? And, you know, thankfully I had a giant box of Kleenex in my purse. They would be distracted. You walk into a church with a broken window 
What does that say? It says that the word of God is not important. You walk into a church that's dirty. What does that say? The word of God is not important. You walk into a church that's disorganized or doesn't welcome his guests. We can go down. I can go down every single so-called less important ministry and it all bolsters the gospel. It all provides the foundation upon which the pulpit of the word of God rests. Amen. All of it does. <clears throat> and listen. It can be whatever you do, whether it's giving, whether it's filling slots, where there's a need, not where your particular interest is or because it's your favorite, but just faithfully being there. By the way, what's a pillar in the church? A pillar in the church is something that is silent and never leaves. It's just always there. Being that pillar. Epaphroditus gives us this example of a tireless worker to make sure that the gospel will be proclaimed. And you guys, in the last year and a half, almost two years now, you've set a tremendous example of this in just our Joyful Generosity uh, campaign. Because Joyful Generosity doesn't benefit you personally. What it benefits is the church, which is proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That's the, that secondary. So being an Epaphroditus, you can simply be that example. Uh, you know what I love is that I can name men. In our church, I can say, you need to be like this guy. You need to be like this guy. You need to be like this guy. And I've preached the whole sermon on the character of a Christian man because I've simply given him an example. Let me give you a third example. Turn with me to Romans 16. Romans 16, right at the very end of the book. At the end of the book, Paul gives a long list of greetings and I want to just highlight four men who have something in common in this greeting. Four men. You don't have to write this down unless you're looking at your Bible to maybe underline them. The four men are Epinatus, Ampliatus, Stachus, and Persis. You don't have to remember that. It's right here in the text. What do Epinatus, Ampliatus, Stachus, and Persis have in common? Chapter 16, verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. And verse 12. Greet the, those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. What do they have in common? You catch it? Hard workers, I think three out of four have called that. What they have in common is that Paul calls them beloved. Now, it's not that the others aren't beloved, but he singles out these men for that particular designation. This isn't something we do here. I, I, I don't go up to Grant and say, my beloved Grant. He would go, all right, that's, that's, that's not going to work for me. But in this culture, to call somebody beloved means that they have earned the reputation of being somebody who spreads love. They've earned the reputation of loving those around them. It means prized. It means valued. It means the object of affection. It's, it's that unique man that just seems to be a magnetic attraction to those who have needs, to those who are in need of encouragement, those who, in, who are in need of, um, of uplifting. Many, many moons ago when I was in school, um, I played trumpet next to a guy. His name is Evan Avery. And Evan Avery was like these men. He was... He was always self-deprecating. He was always telling everyone else, man, you're a, you're a great player. And, and I, I just love listening to you and, and never would take a compliment for himself. Just always self-deprecating. Everybody loved to be around Evan. Now, if you knew Evan, he is today one of the most phenomenal trumpet players anywhere on planet Earth. Absolutely brilliant. And yet he would never put that on himself. He always made sure everyone else felt good. And to my knowledge, he wasn't even a believer. How much more should a believer in Christ be like these men? These are men who are just naturally loving. Some are said to love by their hard work. They're hardworking, like we saw in Epaphroditus. But what they have in common is a tremendous love, which engenders this affection from Paul. This is the sort of Christian love that serves, that sees a need, that meets a need, that in and of itself, that is a form of discipleship. How many of you have a memory any time in the last week or in the last 50 years 
of seeing another man meet somebody's need that you still remember that today. There you go. It stuck with you because it sets an example that's, that's wordless. There are men in our church that way. Many of you are that way. You're setting this example. You're demonstrating the love of Christ. All you have to do to add to that is simply use a few words to say to another man, hey, when you see somebody in need, do something. Don't stand there and just be that direct. By the way, this is what I love about these men, about Stachys and Ampliatus and these men. If you're like them, if you're such a servant that you engender the love of others, do you know what you're doing without ever saying the word? You're actually helping greatly to contribute to a healthy church because a healthy church is one that's loving each other, that's serving each other, not looking out for their own needs all the time. That is amazing. Um, I wrote an article a number of years ago for um, a, a blog and it talked about being a contagious explosion of love in a cold church. I was asked to write on a specific topic. How can I help a church that's just absolutely cold and lifeless? And so I wrote this article about um, just being an explosion of love. And about a year later, I got an email from a pastor who figured out that the complete turnaround in his church was because of one family. One family that decided to take that concept and they would strategize from the kids on up. We're going to start having people in our home. We're going to start serving people. We're going to start loving. And the church began changing and he traced it back to this one family because they were like these men. Phenomenal example. It's very interesting to me that uh, generally speaking, most new members at Grace, and I speak to every one of them, most of them come to Grace Bible Church for discipleship and teaching. Now, I could be tempted to go, well, that's, that's nice. You know, I appreciate that, Steve. That's not why they stay. They stay because of love. They stay because of the fellowship. Just a week ago, somebody that I asked, why did you come to Grace? They said, well, the teaching is pretty good, but I love the people. Yes. Yes. That is a great and tremendous testimony. By the way, that's what the gospel does why we were proclaiming the gospel all the time it creates love so what do we have here we have the men of thessalonica they're an example of lifestyle evangelism they're not up front guys they're not they're not teaching theology they're just sharing their faith we have the example of epaphroditus he facilitates the work of the ministry and sets an example doing that and you have epinatus ampliatus stachys and persis we have now the example of men who go out of their way to love those around them none of these are the classic disciple maker where you're opening a book and saying I'm going to explain to you the Hebrew nuances in the book of Isaiah they're not doing that so I want to finish up I just want to give you eight ways to be a mentor that fits you okay one of these will fit you this is a way that every man can be a disciple maker this is something every one of you can do right now if you've been saved for one week you can do this at this very moment. Here's the number one way. Read a Bible book together and make observations. Notice I didn't say teach it. Just make observations. You can read. I command you. I commend, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant in the church at Sincrea. You can make an observation. Oh, she's a servant. She's commended because she's a servant. Making observations from a text is something anybody can do. Frankly, unbelievers can do that. They may not understand what they're talking about, but they can make observations. So read a Bible book together. You say, I, I, I want to meet with you and help you. I don't think I actually have anything whatsoever to offer, but I have 66 options that do. So let's, let's pick a book. Here's a second way any one of you can be a mentor. Pick a favorite solid Christian book that's impacted you and go through it with one man. And listen, if you've read one book that impacted you, pick that one. That's it. I've been in some of your homes and I see bookshelves filled with books. I've been in others of your homes and I see that one book sticking right there. Like, boy, that one must have really had an impact. Yep, that's pretty much it for me. Okay, then use that one. Use that one. Here's a third way. Commit to pray with another man for a set period of time. Hey, I, I don't have a lot to offer. I'm not a theologian. Like I've only been a believer a couple years myself. But I do know that God answers prayer. And I know your life is a mess. 
can we get together Monday mornings at six o'clock and can I pray for you? How about we do that for three months? I don't know a Christian man that would say no to that. That's easy. You can do that and you can make that a a, a habit. Here's a fourth way. Demonstrate and talk about three things that characterize your life. Three things that characterize your life. If you're faithful in church attendance, if you've managed your money fairly well, and if your marriage is doing very well, or even doing okay, then pick a young man and say, look, I don't know the Bible. I don't know a lot, but I do know this. God has commanded me to be faithful in church attendance. I'm here. God has commanded me to be responsible with my money. I'm doing that. And my marriage is doing pretty well. I'd like to share some of that with you. Can we talk about those three things? I'm not telling you to do those three things. Pick the three things in your life. Unless you're an utter complete failure at everything, you've got something to offer. What have you done well that's been obedient to the Lord? Here's a fifth way. Listen to a sermon sermon series together and ask the one you're mentoring to bring some comments. And it won't hurt you, by the way, either. Just listen to a sermon series. Okay, we're going to meet Saturday mornings at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, here's here's a sermon for this week. Just listen to it. Bring three questions and let's talk about it. It's easy. And if you're not, they sit across from the table. Let's talk about it while we hit golf balls or destroy something or build something. That's fine too. <clears throat> here's a fifth way. If you've been through Bible Training Institute, commit to attend one semester or one module with another man to make sure he's doing his papers, make sure that he's doing the reading and get him on track and hold him accountable to it. Be there with him. <clears throat> there's a young man I discipled years ago and I, I couldn't seem to get him to a discipleship group. He always made excuses. So I finally, I called him on it and I, I called him and said, hey, group is starting in an hour. I'm going to meet you there. He said, ah, I don't know. I'm not feeling too good. So I just went to his door. I said, put your clothes on. I'm taking you. So he did. And so every week for a number of months, I would go pick him up and take him. And he'd say, oh, I'm in my pajamas. I took him in his pajamas once. (laughs) These are men. They don't care. They don't care. I happen to be related to him. So that helped me be able to do that. Listen to a sermon series or or rather uh, get them through BTI. Similarly, go through fundamentals of the faith with a man. FOF has a leader's guide where you can go, oh, I don't know anything. Oh, it tells me all the answers. Great. You have to do your homework, but you can do that. Or tell him to go to the fundamentals of the faith class and you're going to ask him what he's learning. It's very simple. Let me give you one more. This one might surprise you. Serve in children's ministry. Let me tell you why that's so important. Children need to see men serving in the church. They need to see men. And look, if, if your wife is doing all the teaching and your job is to gather crayons and give hugs, that's it. I guarantee you those little seven-year-olds, those eight-year-olds will never forget that you were in that class. And if you go long enough, they might remember that you were doing the teaching. Who knows? Even if your wife is doing it. But they will never forget a man investing in them. I understand why this is, and I don't besmirch this at all, but generations of children in church have grown up only seeing women teaching children. To see a man investing in a child, and how many of those kids need an extra man in their life. I don't know about you, but I can always use an extra man setting an example in my life. So those those are things all of you can do. Just your involvement, just your caring, your time with any of these men or these children, it'll never be forgotten. How about this? When you're serving in that class with those little ones, don't just show up and go, man, I'm glad that got that over with. They tied me to a post with duct tape, but I got through it. How about this? Send them a note, send them a card, send them a little bag of candy or whatever you want to do and invest in them. They will never forget that. They'll always remember because then when they're older, you might be the one they come to. Hey, I remember you when you were teaching the first and second grade class. I remember that. I have a question for you. I'm struggling with pornography. What do I do with that? They will come to you because you engendered their trust when they were little. So all kinds of things you can do to be to be a mentor. Um, one of the great things about an, uh, a multi-generational church is you may say, oh, I'm 20 years old. I can't be a mentor. Yeah, we got a bunch of 15-year-olds that need you. 
And to them, you look 60, so it's all right. <laughs> In just a moment, I'm going to have Don come up. And he's our new deacon over men's discipleship, freshly minted. And uh, he's going to talk to you. But on your own, how do you get started? I'm going to give you five steps to get started. And they're easy. They're easy. Step one, pray for a man. Just pray for a man, for, for, for men. God, send me a man. Send me somebody that I could, I could mentor. So pray for a man. Step two, look around you. Look around. One of our missionaries, Tom McConnell, um, has been influential in my life. He is big in making disciples. And, and I remember him preaching a whole sermon on discipleship. And he asked the question, how do you find disciples? And his answer was simple. Go get them. Go get some. So look around you. It might be in your own family. Do you have a son? Do you have a son-in-law? Are you discipling your sons? Are you discipling your sons-in-law? You know, once you're related, you kind of feel like, well, kind of hands off. No, it should be hands on. Son, I know you're 28 years old, but I think I have a few things I could teach you. Could we talk on the phone every other week? I have a list of topics I'd love to talk through. What a great thing to do. Step three, determine what you can do. What can you do? You might be in that option. You might be in that, uh, that category of saying, look, I can't come up with anything, but I can listen to a sermon and have somebody else do it too. Determine what you can do. There's your specific plan. Step four, approach a man for one meeting, a breakfast or a lunch. It's weird. When you say, could I meet with you to disciple you? Men go, ah, I think I'm busy. If you say, could I buy you lunch? Yeah, I'm good. I don't know why that is. It's the way we are. But approach a man for one breakfast or lunch. Get to know him. And then simply you have nothing to lose. Step five, offer to mentor him. Offer to mentor him. You can even say, look, spiritually speaking, I'm in first grade. But you're in kindergarten. Can I tell you what I've learned in those few months that I'm ahead of you? I have never, ever had a man say no to that. Never. Why? Because we love it when men invest in us. Indeed. Now, I've had men be difficult once I start mentoring them. That's a whole different story. <laughs> but you establish that relationship, that accountability. I still remember a man named Chris who discipled me in college, made me do stuff. One week he said, what do you love right now? What do you absolutely love? And at the time I was playing tennis a lot. What do you love? And I said, I love tennis. He said, great, give it up for two weeks. That was weird to me. And I said, well, why? He said, I'm not going to tell you why. Just do it. He was very direct. So I gave up tennis for two weeks. And he came, how how did that feel? Well, I mean, I got through it, but it was kind of terrible. I really enjoy it. And he said, what did Paul give up for the gospel? What did Timothy give up? And he started just pouring into me, give up things for the gospel. Kind of a stupid lesson. I probably would never do it, but I never forgot it. I never forgot it. So, five easy steps. Pray. Look around you. Determine what you can do. Approach a man once and say, can I mentor you? Now, I I do have to say this. Live a life worth imitating. If your life's a bit of a mess, um, step one, pray for a man to mentor you. Step two, look for a man to mentor you. Step three, determine what he can do for you. Step four, approach him with one breakfast or lunch. And step five, say, will you mentor me? You want to really crank this up? Do both. Do both. Find a guy who's less farther along and find a guy who's farther along and be the sandwich in between. That will enrich your life. I'm going to pray for a moment and then we'll thank God for the quacking ducks. I love that. And uh, and Don's going to come up. Let's pray. Our Father, let this word come clearly into our hearts. Lord, we have 70 years, maybe 80. If you really, really are gracious to us, maybe a few more. How sad it would be to come to the end of our lives and honestly be able to say, I really didn't change anybody's life. I didn't impact anybody. I didn't affect the course of somebody's life. 
Lord, the men who are here who love Christ, who love your word, have so, so much to give, so much to offer. Help them, Lord, to find that one niche, that one way that they could be a mentor, that they could come alongside somebody else just for a month or for two or for three and to change that trajectory, maybe in an almost imperceptible way now, but that will make a huge difference in the course of time. I pray you would open opportunities. I pray that all of us would be open to learning, to growing, to receiving that instruction at a deeper life-on-life level. Thank you for these men, Lord. I pray that this time has been useful to them and glorifying and honoring to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.